Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Few of us on staff had a much-needed vacation this month, but we are thrilled to be back at it. I was off paddling a canoe around the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota. I think I'm still getting used to the computer screen all day and whatnot, but here we are. I do want to thank all of you listeners. It is so humbling to see the continued support for this program and the fellows. I'd also like to draw attention to one of our supporters, Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in their product formulations, and they advocate tirelessly for safer industry regulations because they believe beauty should be good for you. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. All right, today I'm talking to Denise Martinez, a PhD candidate at UC Davis in the Graduate Group in Ecology and an alum of the Agents of Change program. Denise talks about incorporating indigenous knowledge into natural resource decision-making and the ecological importance of wildfires. What a timely conversation. Enjoy. All right. I am now joined by Denise Martinez. Denise, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's been a good day. How are you doing? Good. And we can be honest, this is try number two. I already knew you were having a good day. (laughs) And I'm once again going to tell you that I took a bike ride in the middle of the day, but you already knew that. So I'm doing very well. And where are you talking to us from? I'm talking to you from Davis, California. Um, And yeah, it's really hot here, but it's been pretty cool inside the house. So I'm thankful for that today. Yes, yes, that is something to be thankful for, to be able to escape the the oppressive uh, climate-fueled heat that has descended upon us. So, Denise, you were uh, in our first cohort, and uh, I just had a really great time editing your piece and working with you. So I know a little bit about your work, but I want to start way back at the beginning, and that's about kind of how and when you became interested in ecology and environmental health. Yeah, um, so really... I think most of my interest came from growing up in rural Northern California. I am the descendant of indigenous communities, but we were living there as, you know, kind of in diaspora, um, far away from our homelands. And I, you know, I grew up, there was a lot of wildfire in the summers. Every summer there was a wildfire, there was evacuations. And that was just such a normal part of our lives that, It actually, it's funny, it didn't occur to me as something to study in college until I really started taking um, my kind of intro to biology classes and just seeing how the wildfire problem is kind of fueled by climate and all of these different management um, factors. And then my sophomore year of college, I got to do this really awesome research summer experience where I got to work for the Kaduk tribe as a food crew member. So I was on their food security crew and we were basically um, doing these plots of uh, forest kind of monitoring and seeing how the plants were doing and what kind of management 
um, the leaders of the crew would recommend. And just this experience was really life-changing for me. I think that I realized like, wow, ecology is where I want to be at. And I think part of that is this experience of being part of an environmental justice project and getting to see the connections between the environment, food sovereignty, uh, social justice, uh, tribal justice, and all of these interests that were really important to me came together. And it was just a really awesome experience. And then it also was just so important for our health. And so just having all of that together um, made me commit and be interested in ecology. That's awesome. And and I know you've carried through working, continued to work with Indigenous communities and incorporating knowledge and practices into, into research and recommendations and things like that. And I'm wondering, you know, in working with tribes, are there... What are, have there been challenges? Uh, because it's not, uh, you know, it doesn't always jive with Western thinking, Western science. Uh, and, and also, I'd love to hear about some of the opportunities in, that, that you've had and uh, maybe some of the benefits that and value you found working with tribes. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think some, um, some of the challenges are, you know, kind of having that that opposing worldview that sometimes comes up between Western and indigenous science. And that can be challenging when, you know, working with professors or with other researchers that don't really understand. But the challenges I found as a graduate student have actually been more structural in that, you know, working with a tribe, it's a lot of kind of advocacy driven work. It's a lot of work on the ground And sometimes the timelines for that kind of work doesn't completely line up with a really long timeline like a dissertation. And sometimes that requires me to play like a really good balancing act between my academic responsibilities and my responsibilities to community. And there's definitely some, you know, methods that you can do with to work with communities in a good way. Um, But just I think the institutional university expectations are meant for something with like Western research that's not as community engaged. So kind of being a community engaged scholar, you have to find ways to make yourself fit, to meet expectations and to balance it all in a good way where you're still holding responsibility to community. But I think that opportunities are worth it. I think that I found Um, a lot of really amazing mentors in my Indigenous collaborators, a lot of elders that have taught me a lot about not just my research topic, but also, you know, what it means to be an Indigenous person in the Americas, what it means to learn my culture. They all encourage me to learn my language, to speak to my elders. And I think that just having those relationships has been really awesome and has been, has made my academic experience more of nurturing, holistic, and relational instead of so individual. Um, And so I I think that there's a lot of really great um, opportunities there. And then on the research side, I think that working with tribes is the best way to learn about a place. Um, It's, you know, this thousands and thousands of years knowledge about a specific area and when you 
walk with a a tribal person on their land, on their homeland, you really understand the depth and the breadth of that knowledge and how important it is for adaptation, for understanding this is how things have changed over time. And this is how we use that knowledge to adapt to change now. And so that I just think is an invaluable part of ecological research that's often overlooked. Boy, you are speaking my language here. I, so I live in Sault Ste. Marie, and my my wife is a tribal member with the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians. And uh, where, where I live, there's this there's this very strong focus on we're a port town on the French traders coming here, and that's where a lot of people start the history. But uh, when you talk to the tribe, uh, <laughs> it goes so much deeper, right? I mean, it it goes so much deeper, and to and to drill down to uh, them living in the in the climate, it's a very cold climate here, uh, and, mm-hmm. and thinking about uh, just you know how they manage those the the elements and and yeah, the history is so much deeper. Um, having uh, had a chance to talk to the tribe, and it brings something to mind, and I, I'm curious if you found this too, such a sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's maybe just the, the the tribes here in the Northern Great Lakes. Maybe it's a Northern thing, but I wonder if you found like a real commitment to humor in your work with tribes. Oh, definitely. I think that humor and stories is just such a huge part of it. And it, it's kind of funny because that, that summer I was telling you about where I went out as a research intern, it was my very first time being part of a research project and kind of being in charge of data and Oh man, the tribal members gave me such a a hard time in like a good way. They were kind of bringing that humor in and it put me at so much ease. And then just their jokes um, helped me think, which is kind of funny. And then I, I just, the humor is such a huge aspect of just indigenous ways of being, indigenous survivance, you know, thinking of, you know, people often when they think about indigenous people, they think of all the hard things that our communities have had to go through, but our communities have really committed to joy and humor and being together. And I think that that might be unexpected for some people, but it's, it's true. We're funny. (laughs) (laughs) It was unexpected for me. I shouldn't say it was unexpected. It just wasn't something I thought about. And I've, I've viewed it, uh, everything you just said, and I've also viewed it as like a tool of resiliency. There, there's something to be said to laugh in the face of hardship. Um, and at least a lot of the folks I've had the really great opportunity to to learn from, um, that's what I found. So you, you mentioned uh, your early work um, with the tribe kind of being this light bulb moment. So I don't know if, if this is the answer to the question, but what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it it was that moment and and part of it was that that summer I got to for the first time learn kind of indigenous knowledge on indigenous homelands. Um my parents and you know, my grandparents would instill values in me and would you know, teach me recipes, but we we you know, we've always been far away from our homelands and we haven't had the privilege to to go back and so to see, it, it was like seeing the forest for the first time. And I think I've, I've ever since then have never felt alone in a forest. And I've always felt like it was a home of someone. And it's just, I, I think like learning about the forest from, from 
these Kaduk knowledge keepers. It was about going out and not just learning the name of the plant, but also the oral history, the creation story, um, where it happens, who uses it, who takes care of this place. And knowing that for, you know, the whole forest. And so it's just like every place is, has such a depth of knowledge. And I think that realizing that really changed my worldview in general. And then just um, really changed how I viewed myself as a scholar. I think before I, I kind of saw myself in science uh, kind of on the outskirts of it because of um, my race, because I, I couldn't really see the issues that were important to my family, my community in the classes I was taking and, you know, chemistry, biology, whatever. <laughs> And then all of a sudden in this experience, I started to see myself as a scientist and see how these culture bearers were also scientists and how my parents, a lot of what they taught me was scientific and healing. And, and so it, it just improved my, my self-worth to, to do a whole summer learning from Indigenous people. And I think it, it changed my whole life. So that's, that's really awesome. I don't know if I've told this on the podcast before, but when you were talking about um, the forest, every forest that, you know, you feel comfortable and, 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 and hearing people about who's taking care of the forest and the depth of it. My first, one of my big investigative series I did when I was still reporting, uh, I went out to the Crow tribe in Montana and was driving around. They have a massive reservation there. And I said, wow, there's, there's nothing out there, you know, cause it's kind of plains. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. his name was, his name was Emery three irons. And he looked at me and he said, there's everything out there. <laughs> and I felt like such a dummy, uh, because of course I went on the rest of that week to, to hear about, uh, the, the chief plenty coup spring and the meaning there. And, you know, there, of course there was all, there were stories for every tree and nook and cranny on, on the reservation. And I, um, I learned my lesson. So <laughs> it's a good lesson. I, I felt like before I was also, you know, growing up, not hearing from tribal members, I had seen the forest as just a mass of trees. And then I realized, wow, like each tree has a story. Each section of the forest has its history. And that just, it, it changes how you, how you see everything. Yeah. It's changed how I've seen things. Not, not just that moment, but somewhat from that moment and and learning from others on you're you're so right there's a every little chunk even if it's just an acre there's a whole world right there uh and uh, it, it's all relatives relying on one another for for survival so um mm -hmm. so your work on wildfires you know this is a real it's a it's a topic that every summer pops up in the west and you know wildfires have become feared in the West and for, in some cases for good reason, you know, people lose homes and stuff. But when you wrote for the Agents to Change essay, you, you wrote about um, fire as a living entity, as a relative. And I thought about um, where I live, a lot of people it, it connected with me because a lot of people are afraid of wolves here. Um, different, you know, different threat, obviously, because the wolves in, in my mind really aren't a threat. But uh, the tribes here revere them as a relative, 
It's the same thing that you mentioned as fire. It's a, it's a relative. It's not something we try to eradicate. So I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about this thinking when it comes to wildfire and what, what we can learn from it when we try to manage or coexist with natural resources. Yeah. I mean, I think the the first lesson there is that humans aren't really separate from everything else and not separate and not better than. And I think that that's a huge lesson in general, you know, our, our, our comfort and our um, well-being isn't the only well-being and comfort that matters. And, you know, part of that is starting to see, like you said, relationality, starting to see other species as relatives, as a, a part of the community that we're sharing space with. And the second piece of that is responsibility. And I think that a responsibility to that broader collective, but also to ourselves, to the land, to the future. And I think that that's why having Indigenous people stewarding Indigenous land is critical, because that responsibility is a part of our cultures. And it's it's a responsibility to to the place where we call home that I think we could all learn from. I, you know, like when we think about what am, what am I giving back to the place that's giving me life? And for most people, that's a lot of places that's, you know, our whole food system is everywhere. Our, um, you know, our water comes from really different places in California. It's, you know, a lot of different places depending on where you live and so I try to encourage people to really think about, you know, what if you if I have a responsibility to place, what what am I doing to meet that responsibility? And really try to internalize that. And I, you know, I I don't want to say that it's just an individual responsibility. It really like I I I think sometimes when we think of climate change solutions, we tend to put a lot on the individual. And so I do think that things like activism, like um, movement building, like relationship building is a part of that work because you can't really do it all alone. You can't just buy carbon credits and call that meeting your responsibility. It, it, you know, it's, it's part of that movement work is, is part of meeting that responsibility. So extend this to fires, because when I think of animals, I think I think at least most people's minds, it's a little easier, right? Let's protect their habitat. They need to eat and drink like we do. But if we're thinking of wildfire, which most people think of like a hurricane or a tornado, right? They think of it as a as a natural disaster. So to think about that as, as almost like a relative or something that we need to 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 nurture, um, extend that thinking to that. Yeah. Well, fire is a necessary part of California's landscapes. Um, fire is not just a destructive force, it's a creative force. And for example, certain, you know, certain trees and plants can't seed without fire. Um, without fire, you know, we get these, without consistent caretaking fire, we get huge destructive wildfires because of we're not lowering our fuel loads. Um, fire creates food 
for a lot of different species that, you know, prefer browse. Like, for example, elk prefers browse after fire. It's new, it's springy, it's soft. Um, it creates habitat. Um, it creates pest, um, like, it, it gets rid of pests in acorn. It helps animals get rid of pests by, you know, some animals will roll in ash to get rid of pests on their bodies. Um, fire, you know, helps people a lot in getting to eat, you know, eat the foods. Also, it helps make basketry material. It's just a fire is just such a creative force if we're in right relationship with it. I think it's where we've tried to suppress fire, try to get rid of fire, that we've created the situation where these huge destructive wildfires can occur. But in reality, fire is just a part of California's landscape. And so getting rid of it also gets rid of those food plants. It gets rid of those basketry plants. It gets rid of habitat for, for lots of species. And that's also destructive. Does that make so sense? So just like, no, it does. So okay. just like anything else in, when we think about ecosystems, if you pluck one thing out of that circular ecosystem, it has a cascading effects and, and fire is no different. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's just so, there's so many ways that fire is a, a creative and good force in California and even just like, um, like North Fork Mono um, chairman, Ron Good, he talks about fire bringing water. And so if you think about, for example, you know, a section of forests with a ton of little plants and trees that are crowded and not very healthy, and then you put fire through there, all of a sudden, all those little plants that weren't healthy anyway, aren't sucking up water. And it, it and that can literally bring up the water table. And so there's there's a lot of ecological systems that just really need fire in California. And um, it's just about doing it in the right way. So what are you working on for your dissertation? Is it is it is this the work? What what are you what are you pushing toward here? Yeah. Uh, so the purpose of my dissertation is really about finding strategies for California Native communities and their collaborators to share governance and collab and decision-making mechanisms that support tribal self-determination and governance. So I, I work a lot on environmental decision-making. And part of the reason that I decided to work on that is because working with the Kaduk tribe, again, that summer was really transformative. And then working with them for uh, several years after, I realized that tribes really have a lot of the knowledge and the ideas about how they would like to steward landscapes. But there's a lot that needs to go into sharing governance because a lot of forests are on private or on public lands. And so there's just a lot of shared decision making that needs to happen. And sometimes it doesn't happen in the best way. And sometimes it does. And so my goal with my dissertation is to figure out the strategies that work best and to kind of inform both governments on how to share that responsibility, how to best steward environments in a way that 
also supports um, tribal well-being and self-determination. Is this called uh, structured decision-making analysis or something like that? Yeah. So I I am talking about structured decision-making. I'm talking, um, I'm doing interviews. So I'm doing a lot of qualitative work with um, cultural practitioners to really get their on on the ground experience. Because I think that there's also, there's a lot of collaborations happening. And in theory, that would be great. But sometimes in practice, what it looks like on the ground isn't as empowering or as supportive as you would want them to be. So that's where the qualitative work is, hearing people's stories and hearing people's experiences of being in those collaborations and seeing how, (laughs) you know, how they could be better. And also, you know, hearing about the projects that have really worked. And that's been awesome too, just hearing about, you know, collaborations that have been going on for decades that are you know, building power and capacity. And I think that's really inspiring for me. So it's been a good experience to to talk to folks. So I don't know how much you've worked with state officials or any kind of um, um, folks like that. But when you talk about doing interviews with tribal members and gathering knowledge, do you find there is a receptiveness? Because I'm I'm just imagining that most government agencies are looking at data rainfall per year you know very hard numbers and i and i don't know if they have the structures in place to take in something qualitative like that what's what's your experience been so far yeah so i um recently helped the science advisory panel of the forest management task force come out with a report and it talking about that exact thing because a lot of the way that we prioritize for what we call forest health treatments, basically forest health projects, is um, I, I feel like the state leans heavily on quantitative measurements. And don't get me wrong, quantitative measurements are really powerful. They help us take in a lot of data and make decisions at a large scale. But what I realize is that the way that the way that they were kind of excluding or maybe not not being as thoughtful about the measurements of how we measure things like environmental justice, um, how do we measure the proper inclusion of traditional ecological knowledge, uh, capacity building, all of these kind of more social economic um, prioritizations that weren't being included in a in a way that had maybe the best methodologies. And so, you know, we suggested a rubric that the state could use to, that's like a little more qualitative, but still a rubric. Um, And also just, you know, suggested, you know, made clear to the state that the quantitative measures they were using to measure these things had some blind spots. And I think that that was, um, that was helpful for me to see. It was really eye-opening to see how, you know, these quantitative measures were being used when they weren't the most powerful methods to really measure something like environmental justice, like the inclusion of traditional ecological knowledge. And so we, you know, we suggested new metrics. We also, 
We also just suggested that in general, they take a social ecological approach to prioritization. So what that means is basically really being explicit about the ways that the social system, so governments, decision-making, collaborators, and um, you know, citizens, tribes, all of that, how that is directly impacting the environment and how the environment is directly impacting those other, the, the social systems. And by creating an approach that includes both, you can actually increase the capacity of communities to adapt to climate change because they don't have to, you know, argue every time there's a huge environmental change because they have a structured decision-making process and they have relationships and collaborations and they have the capacity to be able to make changes. And so I think just stressing to the state that that's really important. But yeah, I mean, that's a challenge. And it's a challenge because it's a lot of land and it's a lot of uh, money and decisions that need to be made. And it's hard. But that was my yeah. suggestion anyway. <laughs> yeah. And you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with sovereign entities, right? Butting up against, you know, state governments and uh, municipalities. And, you know, I've seen it here on, on probably a much smaller scale. But I just as a kid, even growing up in a state with 12, I think 12 or 13 tribes here in Michigan, um, I didn't, I didn't know what they were. I didn't know that they had natural resource departments and uh, which where my wife works now and, uh, you know, law enforcement and they're these sovereign governments that are supposed to be working in tandem with the state. And it's, um, it blows my mind that it took me so long to learn that, but I don't think I'm alone. Yeah, I I wouldn't say that you were alone. And I think that Part of what's frustrating also to tribes is that they often get, you know, lumped in with like special interest groups or EJ communities. And I think that's frustrating because they're sovereign entities or sovereign nations and they have a government to government relationship with the U.S. government. And so just being lumped into groups like that when it comes to natural resource decision making can be super frustrating and uh, disrespectful. So, right. yeah, <laughs> it's that's a, that's another challenge. Yes, totally. And and I want to talk about um, your essay when you were um, when you were a current fellow here working with Agents of Change, which t- touched on many of the aspects uh, of your research and work that we we talked about today. Uh, what was it like to have your ideas kind of thr- thrust out into the public like that? And, and any tips for other researchers who want to engage in more of this type of science communication and writing uh, for the broader public? Yeah, you know, it was super nerve wracking at first. I I was really nervous because I had put myself forward in, in such a personal way because I was telling the story of my research, not necessarily just this is my research, here are the results, but I was telling the story of my research, which includes me. And so I was nervous, but it ended up being a really wonderful experience. I got really great feedback. I um, got to show it to community members who were really proud of me. And that, and that it was just all, overall, it was a really good experience. Uh, I think the biggest challenge was actually, I didn't realize how much, <laughs> I mean, and this is a good thing. I, I didn't realize how, how much 
I hadn't owned my expertise in the past. And then trying to kind of write my research in a way that was public facing that that was for people who maybe don't spend 40 hours a week just reading about this one thing. I think I realized, wow, there's so much skill building that I need to do around knowing, you know, what are the pieces that are important for other people to know? Because to me, it all seemed important. But I think that it's, you know, being strategic about what do I want to share? What's the most important? And um, I think that was that was the biggest challenge. And I appreciated your help with that, Brian. Um, But it was, I mean, we figured it out and it ended up being a really beautiful piece that I'm proud of. You know, I'm really proud of it too. I'm 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 proud that uh, we had it, and I'm also proud that we. So we track these things uh, at EHN, kind of where the conversation is online. And I can say, uh, after after your piece, there was this rash of similar uh, opinions, op eds, journalism, and mm-hmm. uh, of course, you can't always draw draw a direct line to the first piece, right? Um, but we saw this conversation online happening that that really yours was the first to kind of say, "Hey, we should be listening to um, in, indigenous people about how to manage fire on the on the western half of the U.S." So I was really proud of that too. I mean, it's proud to start shaping the conversation because that's the first step in in change in trying to trying to make a positive change. So, do you feel like this kind of science communication and writing for the public would fit into your broader work moving forward? Did you in, enjoy it enough to keep doing it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think generally I was super glad to be a part of the program because I think that science communication is critical for doing any sort of community engaged research. You need to be able to tell the community you're working with what your results were in an interesting way in an engaging way. And I think it was really great to be able to share with just a broader public. And I definitely want to keep doing that in the future, you know, maybe at a future job. And um, yeah, we'll see. I, I definitely want to keep writing. Good. And I don't want to get uh, ahead of ourselves here. I know you're working on your PhD, but you mentioned, um, you know, kind of a future job. Where do, do you are you interested in staying in academia or is it all kind of up in the air right now? It seems like you forged a really strong connection with um, with tribes and where you're at. And I know how PhDs work. You pretty much go where the where the job is in <laughs> academia. So have you thought about that at all? You know, I that that is like the question of that I've been grappling with for a while now. And I think what I really want to do is I want to build a future where indigenous science is central to the way we make decisions around the environment, around climate. And I think that wherever I'm able to do that well, I will go. (laughs) And part of that has been, you know, a really, a really great experience of me realizing this is what I want to do. And instead of just looking at academia, I've kind of opened my view out and seen, you know, met a lot of awesome indigenous professionals in all kinds of places. And so I'm, I'm still really thinking about that, you know, where I want to end up, but I know that, you know, this is where, this is, this is where I want my career to work towards. And then, where that ends up being. We'll see. 
Excellent. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I have two more questions. One that came to mind. I, I, you've been doing this long enough now where I'm I'm curious to hear your answer. If you've seen in your time doing this research, a shift for the positive in kind of really broad based, the US kind of being more accepting of indigenous science, indigenous worldviews, teachings, um, or, or if not, or if you've seen, you know, it move backward, I'm wondering what your sense is on how progress is moving on this front. I think we're progressing. And I think that that's really due to a lot of awesome work by Indigenous cultural fire practitioners that have been doing science communication, that have been working with agencies for decades now. And I think that we're really starting to see some big wins, some recognition from the state and just more broadly a recognition by the public that this knowledge is important that we need to find ways to incorporate it into the way we steward our landscapes. So yeah, I I have seen an improvement and I think it's it's due to all of this great activism that's happening in indigenous communities. Yeah, that was the word that came to mind to me too, especially being in the Great Lakes. Um, we have two lines right now. Uh, Enbridge is trying to run two lines through some some pretty important waterways here. And uh, the tribes are leading the opposition and it's coming from a place of, um, you know, kind of historical sovereignty and uh, water resources and water protectors are here. And if nothing else, I think it's put on the radar in this region that tribes are a force to be reckoned with and um, they're, they're going to be listened to. So um, at least regionally, I think I've seen seen that change. And, you know, this is on the heels of Standing Rock and a lot of other really high profile activism that I think put tribal issues on people's radars. So, well, Definitely. Denise, th- this has been uh, this has been such a great time. I've really enjoyed talking to you because I feel like there's a lot of um, overlap with uh, your work and um, some of my interests here in my community. My last question is, what is the last book you read for fun? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, honestly, I just recently reread Harry Potter for fun. It was just one of those, you know, it's a classic. And I hadn't read it since childhood. So that was pretty fun. I'm, I, I used to be really into Harry Potter as a kid. I was one of those nerdy kids, but I love it. <laughs> I read the entire series last year over COVID, finished in the winter, and it was perfect because we had the fireplace going, it was snowy outside, and I, you know, finally got to the end and realized all of the secrets, and yes, Harry Potter is fantastic. It is um, always (laughs) a good recommendation. Yeah, definitely a a cozy recommendation. That sounds awesome. (laughs) Well, great, Denise. Thank you so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. This was really fun. All right, that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Denise. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or ehn.org under our special projects tab. Please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Aaron Gomez, and Hannah Seo. 
We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when I speak with current Agents of Change fellow Tatiana Haidt, Doctor of Education candidate in the Agricultural and Extension Education Program at NC State University. Have a great week, folks.